Well, we are in week two of a new series in which we're looking at two topics at the same time. It's the biblical doctrine of union with Christ uh, paired with the modern problem of identity. And we're using, or I should say we're going to be using, Henry Nouwen's uh, rubric of the five lies of identity, which goes back to a lecture series I think he did about the mid-90s. They basically revolve around the following lies. One, I am what I have what I own. Two, I am what I do. Three, I am what people say about me. Four, I am my worst moment. And five, I am my best moment. And we're using that rubric as a a self-diagnostic. And if you just listen to them, all of those lies overlap. They all inform each other. They can be pretty similar at points. But it's it's a good self-diagnostic. And we'll begin looking at those lies in full next week with one of the more difficult ones, I am what I have. Well, this week we are spending the entirety of our time on union with Christ, in particular uh, the Old Testament basis for it. In the coming weeks, the reason we're doing this is in the coming weeks we will mostly be in the New Testament, especially with Paul, though it's all over the New Testament. So it's important, I think, to see how this is not coming out of the left field with the New Testament and how actually the Old Testament anticipates and looks forward to union with Christ. In fact, I would argue that from really Genesis 3 on, the goal of salvation, the purpose of things like the temple or the Levitical sacrificial system or the throne of David and the promise of an eternal lineage was to bring to fruition communion and life with God. That's the goal of salvation. That right there, that's what God intended for humanity. So before we look at the ways uh, Christians try to define themselves or build a life apart from God in denial of this communion we have with them, and really as an aside, sinful humans already naturally do this. They already do this. So we're concerned with how Christians do this. And before we, we start dealing with the lies, uh, we're going to look at the truth and how God defines our identity and really our very being. So we're going to be all over the place this morning, but we're going to focus our time with Jeremiah's description of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, uh, beginning with verse 31. Let me read for us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this ancient word from Jeremiah that was fulfilled in your son, Jesus, and that we enjoy right now through your spirit. We pray that in this time, your spirit would be among us 
as a people, as, as one body, that we might have eyes to see, we might have ears to hear this word and how you describe us and your relationship to us and what that means for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, through his spirit. Amen. God has uh, chosen to be in relationship with humanity through what are known as covenants. In fact, you heard that word being used, the new covenant, in Jeremiah 31. In fact, uh, you use the word covenant a lot uh, when you refer to the Bible, except you're using the Latin word for it. It's uh, testament, or the Latin is testamentum. So even the way your Bible is broken up is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testamentum and the New Testamentum. Well, a covenant is, is more than a business or legal arrangement, like when you buy a house or rent an apartment. It's, it's more so a marriage, and like with a marriage, it is both deeply relational and intentionally so, even as it, it's a binding contractual agreement. Uh, covenants are bonds in blood. In fact, the Hebrew word that's at use with the word covenant basically means to cut a covenant. And you see that with Abraham, for example, and the covenant God makes with him with the sacrificing of animals uh, involved. It's to cut a covenant. It's a bond in blood. And what that means is that this relationship is founded on mutual faithfulness between God and his people. And should either party break the covenant should either party be unfaithful to the terms of the agreement and you heard it right there in Jeremiah 31 I will be your God and you will be my people that's the arrangement well what results from unfaithfulness is either curses like what you see at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and or death that's why it's cutting a covenant it's why it's a bond in blood it's why, for example, with the covenant God made with Noah, the symbol or, or the pledge of God's faithfulness, and, and think of this like a wedding ring, right? The, the symbol that God gave to Noah and all of creation was the rainbow. It was his war bow. Literally, he judged the earth through water. And God's war bow is now permanently pointed at him. And what that symbol means is that if God should break his covenant with Noah and really all of creation, should he judge the whole earth again through water, he will surely die. That's what that symbol means. So it's a reminder to both God and all of creation, everyone sees it, of God's pledge of faithfulness to what he has made. And you see this same pattern at work with variations or additions beginning with Adam and can continuing through Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and it comes to its apex, its fulfillment with the new covenant and Jesus. And with each covenant, each time, it is God who initiates the relationship. And that's important. It's never, it is never humanity reaching out to God, ever. It's God reaching out to humanity. It is God who made humanity to be his image bearers and to be his viceroys, his little kings and queens ruling uh, over his creation. It's God who gives life to Adam and promises even more life to him should he be faithful. And after the fall into sin, he promises life again. And he promises mercy and abundance. And more, most importantly, he promises himself 
again and again. And that's what's so often missed when we talk about these things. The purpose of our creation, the reason we exist, is to live in communion with God and in turn to represent Him within creation. So when people ask, what is the meaning of life? There you go. That's it. We were created to co-labor with God. And and I can't say this strongly enough. God made humanity to be His own, to be in communion with Him. And yet, as we all know, So we all feel deeply within us, humanity rebelled against God. Even his people who he set apart for the redemption of the world, in the end, were no better than the world itself and chose unfaithfulness and death over life and communion. And even though God's people, like the world, deserve cursing and death, I mean, think about it, they agreed to the terms of the marriage While God does bring some judgment, he never outright destroys his people, and there is never a time in which he is not steadfast in his loving kindness to them. Now, with each successive uh, covenant, and, and they all assume each other and build on what came before, There is always a covenant representative, or or the technical theological term is a federal head. In fact, the way you look at uh, American government is very much based on what you see here with representatives representing people, the federal head. It's a, a mediator, someone who represents the people to God and God to his people. So in Genesis 1 through 3, it's Adam. And whether you like it or not, and most people don't, because of Adam's unfaithfulness, all of humanity fell into sin. With Genesis 8 and 9, it's Noah representing all of humanity. With Genesis 12, it's Abraham, and you can just keep going on down the line. Moses, David, and so forth. And with each successive covenant, there are more promises from God and more revelation of who he is. So we know more with Moses about God than, say, we did with Abraham. And again, even more with David and the prophets. And in turn, There is always a new representative because whoever was the mediator, whoever was the one with the covenant, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Moses, they all die. They all die. They all in themselves have sin too. And each result, each time the result of the covenant is always the same, of course. The people of God, they choose death over life, even as God continues to be faithful. And the problem with these arrangements And the reason I'm saying all this is you could just follow the Old Testament. I'm just giving you the history of the Old Testament. The problem with these arrangements, with these covenants, is not the arrangement itself. So, for example, there's nothing wrong with the Mosaic covenant, the covenant made with Moses. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments or the Levitical system. No, they're actually really good. It's why David can sing at length about how wonderful and beautiful God's commandments and his laws and his statutes are. He has in mind everything you read in the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Bible. No, the problem is that no one can, can uh, actually keep the covenant. And it's not that God has purposely set the bar so high that no human can possibly keep the law. God has not changed his character, or his intentions for humanity since before the creation of the world. The problem isn't God, it's us. 
And sin, of course, is, is not, as you think through this, is not merely the breaking of individual laws here and there. That's how modern Americans want to think about it. I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I, I'm not perfect. I've done a few things here and there. No, no, no. Sin is, is a condition. It's like cancer. You can't shake it, no matter how hard you try. It's why everyone can't help but love themselves and hate their neighbor. It's why everyone naturally pursues their own agenda. It's why if you don't put parameters around a toddler and consistently discipline her, there's a good chance that child will grow into an adult that has little to no impulse control and is selfish to the core. It's why everyone you know now or will ever know is going to die. Another way of saying this is that since Adam, no one has been a fully alive human. No, every human beginning with Adam has a God-shaped hole in the center of their being that only God can fill. And yet, our sin nature is such, it, it, it's, it's, our sin nature is to pursue anything and everything else in order to try to fill that hole. It's like what the book of Hebrews points out. This is the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. The law is perfect and wonderful as it is, and it is, is unable to perfect us. The law cannot make you good. So for example, it's only when someone is defined by sin that he thinks he should get credit for telling the truth or doing what's right. At least I told the truth here. That's an indictment. That's an indictment. As if it's extraordinary that you told the truth. It's like what Jim Dunklin pointed out in session meeting. When people lead with, well, to be honest, what else are you going to be? You've been lying to me before? It's an indictment of how our hearts are. It's only extraordinary to tell the truth when people's default position is to lie. What was required was not a new set of laws, but a new nature. A new nature devoid of sin and filled by God. It's why, for example, David and his son Solomon both started off incredibly well. Incredibly well. Both understanding God's law and even rejoicing in it. And yet both men rebelled against God in pretty heinous fashion. And I would say both men's lives ended fairly badly. Especially Solomon. You know, if people like Abraham... Moses, David, Solomon, all covenant representatives, all men who spoke with God. Think about that. All men who spoke with God and enjoyed his favor. If all of them failed to keep faith with God and in turn died, what hope is there for the rest of us? Well, that takes us to Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. And by the way, you get similar material, similar promises and hopes in Isaiah 40 through 60. Just read the whole chunk. Or Ezekiel 36 and 37. That's why I included it in the beginning of our service. So if you look at Jeremiah 31, if you're looking at those first two verses, uh, well, verses 31 and 32, it says that God is going to make a new covenant with his people that is different than the one he made with Moses and really all the ones that came before. And the distinctive difference is found in verse 33 where he writes, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God 
and they shall be my people. And that last line, I will be their God and they shall be my people, is the goal and the purpose of every covenant. Think of it in terms of Ezekiel 16 or Ephesians 5 or Revelation 19. God is our husband and we, his people, together are his bride. That's the purpose. That's what God both wants and intended for us. That's what he intended with Adam and Eve. And it's the goal of salvation now. With Moses, God wrote his law on stone tablets on top of Mount Sinai where heaven and earth came together in a a kind of Eden. And like with Deuteronomy 6, God told the people to listen to his word, to do everything he commanded, to teach his word to their children, to even bind his word on their hands and foreheads so that they would never forget it. Even kings were commanded to write for themselves by their own hand, their own personal copy of the law and to meditate on it every day. And again, the problem is not God's word or the law. It's the human heart. Well, with the new covenant, God himself, instead of writing with his own finger on a stone tablet, with his own hand will write his law in our hearts, giving us, as Ezekiel puts it, hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. So like with Pinocchio, God changes us from being wooden puppets under the dominion and pull of sin to being real, live, flesh and blood children of the Father. This is a fundamental, fundamental change of being. It's a promise to change our natures from sinful to sanctified, from rebellious to faithful. And this change is so fundamental that it will render everyone as equals because everyone will have the same nature. That's what God means when he says in verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And Paul riffs on this very same thought, this very same thing when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And he gets that notion from Jeremiah 31. And Paul's point is not that social distinctions like race and gender are done away with. No, not at all. It's rather that all God's people will be on equal footing because they will all be indwelled by the same God. And we will all have the law written on their hearts together. So whereas sin was our default nature, holiness will be our nature. Whereas distance and alienation was our default position with God, communion and life together with God will be our default position. So instead of one man having limited access to God on Sinai, like Moses, now God comes to make his home in his people, to indwell his people. It's like how Ezekiel 36 puts it. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That will be true of kings and peasants and everyone in between. God has always intended for humanity to walk in his ways. And the difference is that God's people will finally be able to do it. They will finally be able to keep the covenant. And the God-shaped hole in the center of their being, the vacuum that's been there since the fall, 
will be filled by God through his representative, the mediator of the new covenant. And of course, we know this person is Jesus, the God-man, the one who perfectly brings God and his people together. Well, Isaiah speaks of him as the servant of the Lord. That's basically Isaiah 40 through 60, though clearly Isaiah 7, 9, and 11 all look forward to him too. As Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all make clear, God's servant will deal with Israel's sin in a way that neither uh, previous mediators could do. So just think of Abraham, Moses, David. They could not atone for their, their people's sin, or they, they couldn't fill God's absence either. Neither could the priesthood or the sacrificial system. They could not do these things either. And as Jeremiah 31, 34 says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And again, this is where we tend to land because it's fundamental. There is no reconciliation with God, no repair of the relationship without the forgiveness of sin. So sin like cancer or murder must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And like a tsunami, you you can't just ignore it and pretend everything's fine. That's the modern view. Just ignore it. What's the worst that could happen? No, eventually the wave shows up. And eventually the wave kills you. So even though the sacrificial system was good and useful, it could not fix the fundamental sin nature of humanity. Its usefulness was in servicing the marriage. I mean, in our passage, God straight out says, I was their husband, and I brought Israel out of Egypt by the hand. No, no, no. Its usefulness, the Levitical system, was in servicing the marriage, but still, humanity was in the grips of sin and death, and still separated from God. So God, as Israel's husband, does not want to live perpetually in a state of social distancing. It's not six feet, it's not three feet. He wants none of that. God was close to Israel. He dwelled in their midst, but still he was at a distance for their protection. And what the new covenant promises is then is both the removal of sin in terms of legal atonement and forgiveness, but also the removal of boundaries with God to where, like with marriage, there is a one fleshness between God and his people. But as Paul says, it's so much deeper than human marriage, as good as marriage is. No, marriage is a living symbol that points to what, to what God intended with us. So we are, we are not one flesh with God. We are one spirit with him. That's 1 Corinthians 6, and it's far deeper than human marriage and far deeper than most Christians realize. It's why God does not blush in his use of marriage as a metaphor for his relationship to his people. It's why uh, husbands and wives are said to know each other, and that's clearly a euphemism, and why God says in turn that his people will know him. That's not merely a cognitive, doctrinal Thing. No, it's a deep spiritual union of being with God, or what Paul simply says over and over again, that we are in Christ. This is why, for example, Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, goes by the name of Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is not God beside us or God near us. That's how God was with Israel in the Old Testament. 
No, he is God with us, literally God within us. So consider, for example, how the sacraments of the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are signs of this. Signs like the rainbow of Noah's covenant or circumcision with the covenant with Abraham. They are signs of the reality of God's relationship to us. So baptism is a washing in water that both points to the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of our hearts and minds, but also to the giving of the Spirit. Whereas circumcision looked forward to the coming mediator of the new covenant, baptism looks back to what Jesus did in both forgiving our sin and washing us clean, but also in giving us his spirit. It's like what Jesus promised in John 14 to his disciples who were distraught. This is the Last Supper. They were distraught at his leaving. Little did they know that Jesus would be closer to them than they could have imagined in that moment when he was just a few feet away from them. So when Jesus taught, I am the vine and you are the branches, that was a metaphor for the reality that the new covenant promised. Literal communion with God in our actual bodies. The Lord's Supper, in turn, clearly uh, points to the forgiveness of sins. We get that. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, most people can see that. But it also points to the indwelling of Christ. Consider what Jesus says in John 6. This is what he says to his opponents. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. That's union with Christ language, by the way, in John. Abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So he's contrasting manna in the wilderness that they ate and died. He is the bread of life that you eat him and you live forever. That's the comparison being made. So to have life, you must be indwelled by Christ through the Spirit. To be a Christian, to be a fully alive human is to have Christ in you and in turn, you in Christ. And Paul takes this reality so seriously that this is not mere Metaphor for just some kind of spiritual self-help guruism, but no, he means this literally, that it's a reality. He takes it so seriously in 1 Corinthians 6, the argument he makes against sexual immorality is not merely that it's wrong or breaks the covenant of marriage, which it does. No, it's rather that because a Christian who is in union with God You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are closer to God than Moses was on Mount Sinai by the one fleshness of the immorality with another human who is not your spouse. We are sinning deeply against the one spiritness with God himself who has made his home in us. In other words, we are profaning the temple. 
It's like we have brought a prostitute into the throne room of God. That's how he sees it. So as we said last week, if you belong to Christ, there is no longer merely you as if you are an autonomous individual, which, by the way, is a myth. No, you are Paul in Christ or Rob in Christ. Everything about your existence is now defined by this relationship where God, by his choice, is always and everywhere a present reality in your life, much like how married people are no longer single people but are now one flesh, one new reality. Now, believe it or not, I've barely scratched the surface on union with Christ, and I know I've probably raised a lot of questions for you, and and we'll deal with them in due time. And I know this sermon has been, well, it's been a little technical. It's it's probably been a little dry uh, in some places, but honestly, that's, (laughs) there it was, and honestly, that's on purpose. My intention is that this could be a reference for you, that you could go back and, and listen to this again, maybe catch some of this, the, the scripture references and, and, and whatnot. Even so, hopefully you can see why I'm pairing union with Christ with the five lies of identity. Every single one of the lies we will examine is an attempt to reverse course. It's an attempt to reverse course, to deny our fundamental identities in Christ and in turn to live as if we are not in union with Christ, as if God is not indwelling us and that we can in turn build a life apart from God on our own terms as if there is still a God-shaped hole in the center of our being. And what both idolatry and legalism do, and I hope you can hear how similar they are, What they both attempt to do is put something other than God at the center of our being when God is already there. It's why Paul says to the Galatians, what happened to you people? You started off so well. You started off with the Spirit, but now you're living as if you do not have the Spirit. The irony, of course, is that virtually every single lie we will examine, every single one of these lies that we pursue, just like the Galatians, we often do in God's name. So let me remind us as we go into the next week, Christ is in you. Christ is in you and you are in him and that is who God says you are and he's the one that matters. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the grace we have in our Lord Jesus Christ who indwells us even in this moment. We thank you for your spirit that is at work in us, whether we feel it or not. Lord, you are the one who provides. You are the one who sanctifies. You are the one who has brought salvation and life together with you. We thank you for this grace, this mercy, and this kindness in this life we have with you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.